Dotnet Rocks episode 814 with guest Kim Tripp. Recorded live Thursday, October 18th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, New York City! Welcome to Donnet They ran out of steam pretty fast. Yeah. Must be getting late in New York. It's not a sustained woo. (laughs) Hey, we're glad to be here on the road trip. Have y'all been following the road trip? Yeah, it's fun. We uh, are, you know, the first time we did this, our wives said, don't do that again. Right. So Richard's wife finally relented in 2010. I just got a new wife. So that's (laughs) that's how I dealt with the problem. Yeah, but I'm dumb. And now we're back again, this time uh, doing it longer and for, you know, to more stops than we did the first two times put together. Right. In fact, at this point in the second tour, we'd already be done. That's right. This, we'd be the home. The 16th stop. And it's we're not even halfway through. What were we thinking? I don't know. It, it, it's fun to drive across the country. We've made it across once now. We started in Vancouver. Yep. Now we're in New York. I mean, yesterday in Boston. So we're all the way across the sort of long part of the country, too. The we haven't, part we haven't killed the driver yet. Nope. He hasn't killed us. There's been moments. There's been moments, however. <laughs> so let's get things started with that old music for Better No Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I went looking for something uh, interesting and different, which is what I always do. Sure. And if you go to tinyurl.com slash subarrays, this uh, guy makes a good case for using array segment. Hmm. which is a class in system, system.array segment. Okay. So it allows you to get a subarray. But this is a stack overflow question I thought was interesting. Question, uh, the title is using link to search a byte array for all subarrays that start and stop with a certain byte. Okay, so it's like a marker byte. Yeah, like a marker byte. I'm dealing with a COM port application. We have defined variable length packet structure that I'm talking to a microcontroller with. This is typical when you're dealing with sockets. Sure, sure. Right? You just have one stream, and it's up to you to figure out where that starts and stops. The packet has delimiters for the start and stop bytes. The trouble is that sometimes the read buffer can contain extraneous characters. It seems like I'll always get the whole packet, but just some extra chatter before and after the actual data. So I have a buffer that I append data to whenever new data is received from the COM port. What's the best way to search this buffer for any possible occurrences of my packet, for example. And then some guy gives an, a, an example uh, and using link. And then another person creates this really cool, um, uh, really cool uh, recursive method. Hmm. And he says, while Tristan's answer is technically correct, he's making lots of copies of the original array all at once. If the starting array is large and has a bunch of delimiters, that gets huge quickly. This approach avoids the massive memory consumption by using only the original array and an array for the current segment being evaluated. So this is the subarray approach. This is the subarray approach, and it's a nice recursive, uh, and and he gives a great great way to do this. So, you know, I just, this is the stuff I kind of like to look for and and find people coming up with uh, really cool solutions and just applying, you know, their smarts to, to a particular problem. Stack Overflow does it again. I love Stack Overflow. You should just read this for fun. 
Stack Overflow. <laughs> that's what John Skeet does. I know. He does. He's crazy. Uh, so that's tinyurl.com slash subarrays. And that's all I got. So, Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show, especially for our guests, too. Awesome. Yes. I grabbed a comment off of show uh, 791, and that's the show we did with Julie Lerman about Entity Framework 5, because I know that Kim is a huge fan of ORMs. Oh, she loves ORMs. Yes. She eats them for breakfast. And so this is uh, Jaron Jagerbart, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly, his comment, who says, Hi, Carl, Richard, and Julie. A good show. I'm convinced that Entity Framework is on the right track and that EF5 can be considered a grown-up RM that shouldn't be afraid of N-Hibernate. However, I disagree with your statement that the only place for Entity Framework to live is on the server. In my opinion, there are several very real scenarios where one can make good use of a client-side database, notably mobile applications with offline scenarios come to mind. Entity Framework on a phone? Hmm. Is that what he's thinking? I, that's what he's thinking, or at least a tablet. Yeah. Uh, in that regard, I find it regrettable that there is no ADO.net on WinRT. Oh. SQL Server Compact Edition with Entity Framework on top would be a compelling option, but unfortunately, it's just not available on the Metro side, and I haven't found a solid, good alternative yet, although I admit I have not looked too hard either. I'm guessing that this will be a showstopper, especially for enterprise app in the mobile space. There are several options for using databases, like SQLite seems to have been ported to the Metro side, but I just cannot understand that we would have to revert to the native drivers to access the DB again, unable to leverage the power of ADO.NET and the slate of ORMs that we've come to know and love on .NET. Thanks, Jerome. Well, what do you think? Yeah, I can see, uh, you know, a client-side database on a tablet that has Wi-Fi and access to the Internet. Well, I mean, uh, you know on the WinRT that, side that it's just not an option. You know, you, you've got to go a different direction than that. Well, you can always write XML files, yeah. you know, if you want to save data in a in a cache or an offline setting. But, um, yeah, that can quickly get out of hand. Yeah, and, and, and of course, the whole WinRT thing is trying to keep everything in the same process space. Right. So really, you want your data store to simply be a library you're running in, in context. But, I, you know, at these days, and we've done shows around this, it makes more sense for the client side to just be... Uh, a NoSQL kind of solution, mm -hmm. right? Just right. take the object, stash the object. You're not right. storing reams of data, and you're not trying to do aggregate calculations, which is actually what SQL Server is good at. Right. So, you know, I don't... That's not all, though. Well. <laughs> oh, oh. You just hang on there. Yeah. We'll get to you. Just stand by there, Ms. Tripp. <laughs> you know, but that basic, it's just the data from a Giffen client back and forth thing. That's a pretty lightweight data option. Yeah. And I think that even the SQL Compact issue is a bit of an overkill. Bit, a bit. And, uh, and I'd largely, actually agree. I, I would. I would uh, actually yep. agree. We've talked her down. <laughs> yep, okay. But Jerome, thanks so much for your comment. We don't have to agree with you to send you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight offers uh, awesome, awesome training online. Video training. They have over 300 uh, advanced courses, and they offer about 8 to 10 New courses every month, uh, including courses on SQL Server by Miss Kimberly Tripp, who is our guest. So, uh, and we'll talk to her in a minute. But also, lots of other industry experts on lots of other topics, including iOS, Android, Java, everything Microsoft, uh, HTML, JavaScript, CSS, Windows 8. You name it, it's up there. Pluralsight.com subscription plans start at just twenty nine dollars a month. And with that, let's give a hearty round of applause and welcome to Miss Kimberly Tripp. Yay!
It has been way too long since way you've been long. on Donna Ross. I know. I was looking at that today. Yeah. Yeah. I've done four run as radio shows, but it's been, I think, two years or three years since well, I did a why? DNR. Because every Cause time you don't love me the, anymore, every, Carl. No. Every time you're on the show, I get brain damage. <laughs> because you make my brain hurt. I brought Advil. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I I just remember that it was, I don't know, the first or second Snapchat time. Snapchat isolation. I remember it. Yeah. Well. It was, she she had so much stuff on the stack, probably nine levels on the stack in, ten, in tangents, and popped them off and, you know, all at, at, went back to original point in the right order. And I was just like, wow. I was just amazed at that. I forgot completely what we were talking about. My favorite, though, was that that editor that did a review of yeah. it and said he had no clue what I was talking about, but thought I should maybe look at phone sex as another job. Oh. <laughs> he said it was like a great discussion. And I, I read this review and I'm I Really? It was, yeah. It was wow. very bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> so. People are weird. They are weird. You're so, right. Kim, um, way back then, I mean, you are... You, you're so into getting indexes right, and I think that's what we were talking about. Low those minutes. It's probably 10 years ago. Maybe. It was actually Snapshot Isolation. Yeah. Snapshot Isolation. I do isolation. remember it well. Yeah. But uh, you, you. Carl doesn't. Yeah, no, I don't. I just remember my brain hurt, but I was really trying to follow her. I really was. But uh, you, you just, do, you, you know so much about SQL Server. Sometimes, you know, the, the acronyms for a, a, just a regular programmer like me throw me for a loop. So um, one of the acronyms that you brought up was DMV. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about DMV. What is that? Um, it was actually, that's a great discussion. Uh, dynamic management views were added to SQL 2005, and they're a way for you to look at... There's actually a variety of DMVs, and they're really... V is not really the right... Uh, letter. They should have used DMOs, like dy dynamic management objects. Right. Okay. Some, it's not really a view. It's not really... Some are views, some are functions, mm. but they all return a tabular data set. Okay. Um, sometimes multiple tabular data sets, but they all return a data set, and that's why they call them DMVs. They look like a view. They, in a lot of cases, act like a view, but behind the scenes, they might actually be a function. So a lot of DMVs will have parameters that are required as input. And the idea behind the DMVs when they came out with them in 2005 was to give us as administrators, as developers, as operators, a way of seeing what's going on right now in memory. So it's an instrumentation device. Yeah, and a, a monitoring and analysis yeah. device. Yeah, and most DMVs are just looking at something that's in cache. Most DMVs are fairly lightweight, but notice I kept saying most. You have to be a little careful because some DMVs, like I'll give you a great example, probably one of the DMVs I use the most, It's and you're going to love these names if you're not already familiar with the DMVs, they tried to come up with a really nice, consistent naming convention. So it's DM underscore DB underscore index underscore physical underscore stats. But they're all similarly named. I got like, that. I know. I can't. <laughs> so... The the benefit of the consistency in the naming convention is you can sometimes guess, but that's pretty challenging, I have to admit. So you can find them all. There's, I think, about 87, 90 DMVs out there. Mm -hmm. And most, like I said, go against information that's in cache. Most are relatively easy to access and cheap and lightweight to access. But like DM, DMDB index physical stats actually goes and reads data. And it's a function, and there's three parameters, limited, sampled, and detailed. And detailed, obviously, is the most expensive, but you can use the different parameters to change the way that it's analyzing the data. But it is 
like detailed, doing a scan of your data. So that can be very expensive. So well, you're talking about scanning a whole index. Is, yeah, whatever whatever physical structure you're asking for, you can do a table and all of its indexes. Mm-hmm. You could do just a particular index of a table. So yeah, you might only end up scanning an index, but it's still and can be on a big table, really expensive. Sure. So yeah. especially if that table's under load, like it's yeah, busy. absolutely, and you can kill your cache. So yeah, you have to be really careful. So they're really fantastic, and I'm not saying not to use them. They're probably the number one thing that we as a team use the most. We do a lot of health checks and analysis and all of our code basically uses DMVs or largely uses DMVs to look at what's in the cache, look at what statements are executing, look to see if your plan cache is bloated with what we call single use plans. Um, look if you've got anything that's out of skew, like the average is something, but there's a, a, a max and a min that are way off of average, like what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that you can get from cache, which is really, really cool. So they added them in 2005. They expanded them in 2008 in R2 in 2012. So they just, they keep coming at us with more interesting ways to analyze process memory, server memory, and so forth. Yeah, they're great. Would you say that a lot of the stuff that your expertise in is really dealing with problems that arise at certain scales? Like you're, you're dealing with really highly, a lot of data, a lot of activity. Or can can a lot of these problems creep up even yeah. with hundred row databases and limited activity? Okay, hundred row, I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah. hundred row. You okay, know, ten thousand rows. Ten thousand rows, a hundred thousand rows. I mean, I, the way I look at it is best practices. If you start early and and you're you're consistent, like even just consistency is yeah. huge. If you do some things right from the beginning, very consistently all along, and I'll come back to consistency starting the stack. Yep. Um, but <clears throat> if you do things very consistently right from the start, I would say that even if you don't know how large your application is going to scale, because how many of you thought your app was going to do one thing, right. and then of course your users totally lied, and it does something else, and it grows faster, or it you know, how many times have you guys designed an app that was only supposed to be for three months? Yeah. Right? yeah. And three 10 people. Three years later. Yeah. yeah. 10 people, three months, you know. And the worst thing you can possibly do is succeed because yeah. now you have to keep it. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it's, in a lot of cases, not going to scale because yeah. right. some of those applications were I'm the I'm sorry. Expected. Did you just describe SharePoint? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. I didn't even have to say it. <laughs> so, love so glad we don't work for Microsoft. You could make, you could make some arguments that they, just like many other databases, had a great idea, a great product, a great focus, but they didn't know what they didn't know about SQL. Right. And they, they didn't well, and talk they- to enough people, potentially. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't work on SharePoint. I haven't. I know a lot about what it doesn't do right. But, you know, <laughs> the long story short is... They didn't expect it to to spread like it did and grow in a lot of cases as it has. And and as a result, some of the design decisions that they made early on, which are very difficult to change, yeah. have really limited them, caused them grief. And even things that they've put out there, like their timer jobs over the past, they didn't know everything about SQL and their timer yeah. jobs had some problems. And then they started publishing, hey, these things are bad. And it wasn't those database options right. that were bad. It was the timer jobs. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, 
a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to Telerik.com slash .NET decompiling and remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So, so yeah. it's really obvious that, um, you know, we get scared when we hear people like you talk because, you know, our stuff works and it's working okay, but we know that when things get really busy and, and it really scales up, all these problems are going to rear their ugly heads. So we're constantly wondering, did we set this database upright? Did we architect it right? Yeah. So as you said before, they're really e- it's really easy to do the right thing on the, on the front end, but, yeah. you know, later on, it's very difficult to change. Yeah. If you had to pick one thing. Oh, no. One thing that people do all the time that is a common problem that they just, if they would have just done this, they could have saved themselves so much hassle when they were successful. What is it? Can it be five things? All right, five. <laughs> I knew, I knew five. Um, Good. No, no, no. no I, I Let me go back to the consistency point because that's a real common problem where people don't consistently use data types. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... They end up in an application, maybe prefixing it with an N, thinking it's Unicode, but the data oh. in the server is maybe not Unicode, and they get something called an implicit conversion. And some of you may have heard of that. And when an implicit conversion occurs, then essentially SQL Server is going to have limited options for the way that it gets to the data. And long story short, you often can't use an index. You do a scan and it means that even though you might have a good index, the client code that you're sending can't leverage it because of this implicit conversion. So you're saying if you're using n varchars, for example? Against a varchar type. See, the idea oh, is, yeah, the idea is if there's two types and they're mismatched, then SQL Server has to bring the lower type up to Are you the talking higher like type. In a query when you're doing a join maybe on two things and one's a, a join is another great example. That's a probe residual, but it's the same but kind are, of implicit conversion. Were case. you talking about with an implicit conversion where your client co- says it's a, var- a char and it's actually an n var char? Yeah, and, and, That's and what the, you're about. or it's really the other way around. The client yeah. maybe sends over Unicode and the data in the server maybe isn't Unicode. Okay. It's ASCII. But that's a bug though. Can't you just change it, that by changing? You could what, by fixing the application, yeah. but I see it a lot where people either don't think it matters, they yeah. start using the N to prefix strings and they use it everywhere, not oh. realizing that some of their data isn't Unicode, okay. and they start having implicit conversions. And John, one of the guys on our team, Jonathan Cahayas, did a blog post. If you actually, I mean, I know remembering Jonathan Cahayas might not be easy, but if you do a, jo- a Jonathan Cahayas implicit conversion search, you'll get to a blog post that he did where he actually searches the cache for any implicit conversions using the DMVs that exist right now. So you could actually just go to your server right now and say, show me all the implicit conversions if there are any. It's only for the statements that are in cache right now, but you could easily find that and it shows you what the statement is, what the type was that they were looking for and what the type actually is so that you can go back to the application and fix it. The the evil thing here that you're implying is that you're storing, you've got a, a table full of varchar, and in comes a parameter request in nvarchar, yeah. and you're 
because it has to go to the most advanced data type, basically, it goes, it goes to the superset. It has that to bring the column up to that type. It brings yeah. the column up to NVARCHAR, so and that's expensive. it has to read expensive. the whole column, so it has to scan. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah, yeah it's pretty It doesn't painful. matter how, what you did with the index. Like the, it, all of that's out no. the window because yeah. it's now trying to fix the data. And there's other implicit conversions as well. So that's, that's just a common one that like in our health so checks, like we would check for that. Are and you, they're everywhere. Are you implying we should always use NVARCHAR for strings? Because you say never extent, use all, you never no, say always. I, I, I know. To a certain extent, I do like NVARCHAR, especially mm -hmm. because as of 2008 R2 and higher, there's things like Unicode compression. It's enterprise only though. So that's probably the negative for some of you. So you can actually store, you know, trip, for example, in a Unicode column, have it compressed and it only takes five characters as opposed to 10, like a Unicode would. So, so I do lean more towards Unicode because of the flexibility and the capabilities with it. But I'm not really saying that. I'm saying just be very consistent. Make sure that when you're joining two columns, they're always on exactly the same data types. When you're searching against a column, you want to make sure that in some cases you explicitly can convert to the right data type of the column. And I, I, will, got it. I will sometimes do that in my dynamic strings. I'll okay. actually put in a conversion. So, Kim, we have a question from the audience. Okay. Hi, Kim. What is the it? minimum role for a, um, a DMV? Yeah. So, is it fixed to men? Because yeah, it's very so hard to get to. It's a bummer. So this is a great question. Um, what's the, the minimum role for somebody to access the DMVs? Or for any of you that are using things like Azure, um, you're not going to have access to it unless you have, well, on Azure, they don't have access yet. They're, they're going to slowly expose some of those things over time. I, to be honest, I don't tend to work as much with Azure as I do on the box systems. So yes, you're usually working at an admin level or a server operator level. Um, and that's a bummer. However, a lot of DMVs are very inexpensive and you should be able to work with an administrator to, and this is what I would strongly recommend that you do to create DMV queries or even get them off of various blogs and websites like Glenn, one of the guys on our team did a DMV a day for the entire month of April 2010, created a toolkit of DMVs, and then every April since, so 2011, 2012, he's actually updated the toolkit and he gives a whole bunch of DMVs that are very, very cool for diagnosing all sorts of different types of problems. Having said that, what I do is I take the DMVs and I persist them to my own little database. Like I, when I work with a system, I create a SQL skills database. I create jobs that periodically look at the DMVs, persist that data into my SQL skills database, and then I analyze my SQL skills database with no limitations to it, right? Because it's just a database now. So you create jobs, you should be a politician. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're looking for you. Yeah. But I get because that's what I want to do. Yeah, I want to be yeah. in politics. <laughs> but I, but I like the idea that rather than having to hand you administrator privileges, yeah, but they're they're not going to do right. And I, I get you that. have this job running with administrator privileges to pull the DMVs that you need and put them in a form that doesn't require those permissions, so you can go look at them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's probably the safest way to work with your admins, and the most likely that they'll actually do, because they can run the queries, look at the queries, look at the data. They don't even have to give you the database or give you access to the database till they feel comfortable with it. And you can say all of those things I just said. You know, Take some time, look at this data. Once you feel comfortable, this is what I need. Okay, always do, or from the beginning, mistake, big mistake number two. Okay. I would say letting SQL, because see, this one's going to be a huge one that's going to have like 18 sub-topics. Okay. <laughs> letting SQL Server choose defaults 
for various things. When you guys create a database, if you don't set the default for the data file, the log file, where it places them, how it sizes them, this and is we're not talking show, about yeah. we're not talking about in the cloud. We're talking about on a box with your I'm own talking hard about, drives. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, almost anywhere. And I okay. again, that's not my best experience on the cloud. Right. But mm-hmm. I where they place it, that's going to be up to them. But yeah. sizing it and how you deal with that data, I would argue, is something especially on the box that you really want to think about. Um, if your data files and your log files are constantly having to auto grow. That takes time and it can actually impact performance negatively. It can also be something where you run out of space and then you may have downtime when, you know, you need that system to be working. So you, you want to be careful to, in some cases, pre-allocate reasonable initial sizes, reasonable growth rates. Maybe a, a, as far as hardware goes, maybe a log on a separate hard drive yeah, dedicated separate to hard itself. Drives. You know, you want to yeah. consider like RAID 5, RAID 10 for data. Have you, you had like, good experiences with RAID? Well, RAID, yes, but yes? I'm not, I'm not saying RAID 5 is my favorite. Um, okay. Because you can definitely have a lot of impact from writing the parity. Um, but economy of scale, if you have 18 drives, can sometimes offset that. But no, I'm a, a much bigger fan of RAID 10, RAID mm. 10 triple mirroring. Mm. But of course, you know, you'd think I got kicked back from the hardware vendors because that's more money. And it's a lot of drives. It's a lot of yeah. drives. But again, I, I mean, I have one customer that, that I love because every time I talk to them about anything money related, they're like, yeah, we, whatever, you know, we buy have more, budget. buy more. Yeah. Grade zero plus one. They, Here they we go. have 400 hard drives for their log portion. Of oh their database my God. And 1600 drives for their data portion. And, uh. and that's like one database. Um, yeah. So, I mean. In, and those are eight gig hard drives. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's running on a superdome. It's a pretty beefy box. So, yeah. it, but the the long story short is, when you are at the very high end, you will throw a lot more hardware. Yeah. But what you said earlier was interesting to me because a lot of what I do is not at the the high high end. I mean, I do have some high end customers, but okay. I would say the majority of what I see and what I look at and what I work with is is middle mid range and the types of things that that are being done incorrectly are across all of those environments. And they're right. very, very common. Like uh, database defaults, really common. Letting the log become very fragmented. Yeah. I, I think I first blogged about VLF problems in like 2004. Acronym, please. Uh, virtual log files. Okay. Sorry. Um, when you create a transaction log portion of a database. No, please do that. Uh, yep. But if you create a database the transaction log is internally divided up into what are called virtual log files. And if you end up letting a transaction log auto-grow, 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 you can end up with a lot of VLFs. It's not nearly as big of a problem as it was on 2000, 2005, 2008, but it's still an issue. And you really should pre-allocate to a reasonable initial size, set your growth rate. You don't want to turn off auto growth because you want that CYA, that one I'm not going to spell out. And you know, you want, you want to have that production if you run out of space, right? So you want that, but at the same time, you don't want that to be the crutch that, that lets the database grow to the right size. And so I did a blog post on how to fix that. And there's kind of, you could have too few, you can have too many. It's, it's really kind of an awkward, thing in SQL. They, they, it doesn't jump out at you. It doesn't tell you that you're doing something wrong. Right. And that frustrates me. Like, okay, another one very high in the list. All right, number three. Okay. Very high in the list is GUIDs. 
Or quids, depending on which coast you're on. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. When SQL Server introduced the ability for you to leverage a GUID, which is, you know, basically the universal ID in SQL Server or in Microsoft products. So you could have this globally unique ID. Everybody thought this is the greatest thing ever because we don't have to reconcile with a central server authority for an ID, which is going to be unique. So Unique in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And programming wise, it really simplifies a client. The client doesn't have to go to the server to get a key, then come back to the client, then yep. send the child rows over to the server so they can bundle things up mm. with almost certainty that they won't have a collision. Now, right. there are potentials for collisions, but you know, having said that, the likelihood is so low, most people don't even do error checking or right. error handling. So it's simplified to the interface. But what happened is they made this GUID the primary key. And, and yeah. in and of itself, that's not the problem. No, you can have a GUID as a primary key. That just doesn't smell good to well, me. But here's the problem. The default behavior of the primary key is that it is the clustering key of the table. Right. For indexing. For indexing. And the clustering that's gotta key. That's got to be stinky fast. Yeah, I know. You know. See, I keep talking. I'm sorry. I just don't shut no, up. No, you know no, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying so, that that cluster has to be yeah, small. This you, is, you really this want this it bad. You want it sequential. Well, goods are not sequential. So here's, let me start with what a clustering key is okay. because that physically structures the data. So if you physically structure the data by a randomly generated GUID, then where is the next row going to go in this table? Yeah. I don't know. And if yeah. my table is two years of data and I'm randomly insertioning, inserting into that table, I have random insertion points and infinite insertion points, then in almost no time at all, I'm going to need like that whole table to be in cache. So imagine having, you know, multiple years of data ordered by a GUID. You're going to require all that data to be in cache when maybe all you're really interested in is October of 2012's data. If you had ordered that data, I'm not even going to use an identity. Let's Mm. say we ordered it by date. Yeah, Date's not really the best clustering key, but let's go with it for a second. Mm. If I ordered by date, then my newest data would go to the end. And if I'm only querying, for the most part, October, September's data, then only that data has to reside in cache. So you can end up reducing your insertion points. You can have less data in cache, get a better cache footprint. The data and the pages that you're going to need are going to already be in cache when you do the insert. There's huge benefits here. And yet, what was the problem? SQL just defaulted to putting this clustering key on your primary key. And a lot of people would think... Well, Microsoft must be using that default for a reason, so that must be the best thing. So they kind of let those defaults kind of go through, and then they can't scale. Because that's exactly what happened to SharePoint. And what's happened to a lot of customers out there is they have these GUIDs all over the the place. And there's more to them. So GUIDs aren't bad as an identifier, (laughs) but just don't make them your primary key. Yeah. Don't make them your clustering key. Clustering key. You order the table. Yeah. I mean, I can add to that, too. If you... Choose a different clustering key, but it's really inefficient, like it's really wide. Mm. Something else that people don't realize is that internally, SQL Server uses the clustering key in non-clustered indexes to do lookups. So think of a non-clustered index like an index in the back of a book. In the back of a book, you know, like you're talking about a book on animals, and you go to look up a particular animal, you go to the back of the book, it's alphabetical, and it says, oh, the platypus is on page whatever. So you go to that page. So the lookup ID in a book is the page number. Okay. In SQL Server, they use the clustering key as the lookup ID for that particular data set. So I can make it really simple. Imagine a table on employee data 
And you chose last name, first name, middle initial as the clustering key for some reason. You thought it was a good idea at the time. Right. So then you have a non-clustered index on social. They're going to tack on last name, first name, middle initial. And because that's not unique, they actually even tack on something else called the uniqueifier. A and uniqueifier. That, yeah. oh, don't even start me on that one. Let, let me pop the hold on. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you have five or six or eight, and by the way, you can have 999 non-clustered indexes. But even if you only have five or six or eight non-clusters, last name, first name, middle initial, and phone, if I had said that, has to be tacked on to every single non-clustered index, making those non-clustered indexes wider, less efficient. They're going to take more disk space, more cache, more logging. As you add data, we have to go into those indexes. So it, it just causes everything to be kind of weighed down. So and, don't and do that. Yeah, it's like, it hurts when I it bend my elbow. Hurts. Don't do that. Don't do that. So, so popping the stack a little bit. Um, so it's really bad to have a clustering key that's really wide. Right. Right. That just kind of weighs things down. So again, it's that whole, what should be the key? What should be the default? And again, what SQL Server chooses for the defaults, there are reasons they did that, but it's sometimes one of the worst things. you. I mean, do. the advice I've given to customers is to recognize that defaults aren't to benefit the customer. That'd benefit Microsoft. Well, or to to make certain aspects of setting something up easier. Yeah, and, it's to right. minimize. I mean, it makes sense. You, you when you, you have expect, to do something. You've right? talked right. everybody into creating a primary key. That may be the only key they ever create, and you got to cluster on something. And the primary key is probably the first thing created, so they basically took the path of least resistance, not the path of optimization. Yeah, yeah, and you know you can only have one primary key per table. You can only have one clustering key per table, so that matches up really nicely. So it. it to a certain extent, makes sense, and well, and there and, are and good that, primary. And those keys two too. roles work together just fine when we're using long ints as our as exactly. our unique identifiers. You know, identities that naturally incremented in sequence that worked just fine as a primary key because it was unique, mm -hmm. and as a clustering key because it was ordered. And it was ordered. It's beautiful as the row identifiers. Like all that stuff works. Mm. It's just that it's not a big enough number. Yeah, it's mm. interesting because in the SSDT, the SQL Server Data Tools that comes out with 2012, when you go to create a new table, they have a little template, and they pre they didn't want to enter you into an error state. So they have a column already there when you create a new table, and that first column is a column that is an integer based identity column that is the key. Right. I love it. Now, a lot of people are not using that, but I, I hope that more people will kind of see that and maybe even wonder, why should I do that, or would that maybe be a better choice? Is not indexing, not creating indexes up there on the thing, on the, on the list of things you should do preemptively? Yeah. Or, is, or can, you, can you create indexes later on when you yes. discover why you need them? Indexes. This is by far one of my favorite topics. <laughs> um, the thing with indexing that's a challenge is that there's no simple answer to what indexes you should create. Right. I do have to admit, though, that when I talk to people about design and basic kind of setup design principles, I, I do want them to do a couple of things. Choose a good clustering key to start. And usually that's something that's unique, narrow, static, right. ever-increasing, something like an identity column. Identity yep. So column. choose a good clustering key. Then, and I wonder how many of you do this, because I bet there's a bunch of you that don't know to do this. 
I have people use primaries and foreign keys, right? So I, I want you to use relational integrity. Don't sit there and tell me that foreign keys are expensive, so you don't use them. Dealing with the data integrity problems you will end up having if you don't have foreign keys is way worse than the small amount of overhead that is done to check your foreign keys when you're adding data. And you can make it less expensive by putting an index on your foreign keys. And you can also help some joins with indexes on foreign keys. I've actually gone to customers and literally just basically put indexes all over their foreign keys. And that in and of itself gave a huge gain in performance. But it's not the default behavior. They don't automatically put an index on a foreign key. So good clustering key, create your primary keys, unique keys, obviously to maintain uniqueness, create your foreign keys manually index your foreign keys and then create any other indexes for things that you know are highly selective. Right. Things that, that you query on a lot. Yeah, but but return a very small number of rows. Okay. Just because it's an aware clause yeah. doesn't mean it needs an index. And in fact, that's one of the worst things that people do. Oh, mm. this is in my where clause. I must need an index on it. This is So what I want you to do is just do the highly selective things and then stop. Yeah. And then as you know your workload, and this is the thing that sometimes you don't even fully understand your workload until it's in production because yep. users lie, right? So you don't We have established really know. that earlier yeah. in the evening. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's not that they lie, but what they actually do and what they think they're doing are, are often different. Like right. they might all go through a particular dialogue to get to where they want to go. And they don't think of that dialogue they go through as important. But if 99% of them all go through that dialogue, then sometimes tuning what happens in that dialogue is way more effective than tuning where they're going because only, you know, one-tenth of them use each of those dialogues. You know what I mean? So sometimes right. – Knowing what's really going on on the system and analyzing the workload tells you what you really should too. And that's where that DevOps thing comes in. Exactly. So, hey, hey Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. It's oh, no. time to give away some software I to love a it. lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Who's our winner? You guys, all members of the fan club. Yeah. <laughs> Half of you are, I'm sure. Well, anyway, <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the Get Free Stuff button. Every show, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, which is everything they make in one box. And today's winner is Kasaba Toth. Oh, congratulations. Big hand Big for Kasaba. No golf clap here. No golf clap here. We should do live shows every day. Yeah, I think so. Oh, my God. In um, addition to the prize we're giving away today, yes. in, in December, we're giving away $5,000 worth of Technology goodness, right? Handpicked by us, yes. But we keep getting advice. We on keep what getting to pick. advice, and we always ask our guests now: If you had five grand, somebody said, "I will buy you toys as much as toys as you want for five grand." Technology, what would you do? What would you want? Kimberly Trip. Could it be any time, or am I talking SQL Server? Any it doesn't tech. matter. Anything you want. I know you'd buy hard drives. That's just a given. <laughs> yeah. I do like hard all drives. SSD do like hard drives. drives. All SSDs. Five grand worth of SSDs. Yeah, we, we have 35 terabytes in the garage now. Nice. That's oh, really nice. Wow. That's <laughs> I'm, awesome. I'm only at 10. Because, you know, everybody and should have And that's just for their music the collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love music. Um, five grand. I, five grand. Well, I just got a new laptop, and I have to admit, I, I'm loving it. And, mm -hmm. and it's one of these things where I can, it's a portable server. Is it's really a Delosaurus is. is what it, it is. It is. <laughs> it's like nine pounds. And, and so, you know, 32 gig of memory, three internal solid state drives. Right. Um, it's an eight way. 
So, I mean, I've just, I've, yeah, I know. See, because everybody yeah. should be carrying that around in their bag, right? Yeah. Is that, but that's more than five grand, isn't it? No, it was about five grand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you go, super loud. I, I thought you for sure you were going to say, give Paul a haircut. Because, you know, <laughs> I like they would probably hair. cost five grand. <laughs> it's a lot of hair. It's I'd a lot have of to hair. pay him five grand, and I don't think he would. Yeah, I don't think do so. It, yeah. All right. And if you're not a member of the fan club, please sign up. It's on the right side of the page on the big button that says, get free stuff you can't miss it we have thousands of members already all right i gotta get back to the show here because i gotta talk about the bad side of indexes ms trip yes the, the down the, the dark every time side. you add an index the hoary you underworld you slow down adding rows deleting rows and absolutely. updating rows absolutely there, so you're trading read performance for write performance every everything has a downside and i think as far as adding indexes the biggest problem in sql today is that the tools are telling people to add more indexes right. without any analysis of your existing indexes and consolidation. A, a term that I use a lot is index consolidation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes if you run a query and you ask for a hint from SQL Server, hey, what index should this query create to make this query better? They'll just tell you, you need this index. Mm. And they don't ever tell you, if you create that index, you could possibly drop one of your existing indexes, or you could create maybe a slightly different index and consolidate this new index with another index and end up basically creating one index that's better mm. than two indexes. And, and here's what's happening. People are ending up with a ton of indexes because the tools are basically telling them to do so. But they never tell them to clean up their they, mess. They don't. And you have to be really careful with tools that do tell you to drop indexes. Mm -hmm. um, in my experience, some tools have recommended that people drop indexes by only looking at the key portion of the index, not looking at the full structure, something called include. Right. And they're mm -hmm. recommending people drop indexes that are actually not identical. Mm -hmm. I wrote code and I, I published it on my blog. It's free. And you can just download it. It's It finds all duplicate indexes in your database. One execution. It'll tell you every dupe and you might even think oh i don't have duplicates you'd be surprised um you mm. can create an index that doesn't even necessarily look like another one but because of the internal changes that sql makes adding the clustering key to the non-clusters you might have indexes that like with sp help index look different but actually internally are the same and it surprises people. I had somebody that found 57 duplicates in a production database that was heavily replicated. Okay? So this is a big data. problem. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, it's huge. I mean, they're taking extra time when they add the rows. They're taking extra time in the replication, the log reader. They were replicating those indexes. So, mm. yeah, it's it's amazing how common it is. Mm. Another thing is having indexes that are similar, left-based subsets. You know, if you have an index on last name and you also have an index on last name, first name, if you think about it, any query that uses the index on last name alone could use the index that's last name with first name. Some queries, and it would be a very limited number, some queries might not be as good if they use the last name, first name, but that's going to be so few and far between that in a lot of cases, an index which is a left-based subset of another should be dropped. So what, what, are the, what, do pe what are people to do if they're not an index expert? You yeah, know? And they, I mean, do you really need to hire SQL consultants and have them look at your data and tell you what you should keep and what you should drop? <laughs> Well, or is there no, guidance? Not necessarily. Is there guidance? Are there? There's is there a lot of guidance out there. Checklists and rules. There's a lot of guidance out there. There's blog posts, things that you have to read. It's just 
I think the problem is that a lot of people don't even know that they need to know this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a right. lot of people will create databases. They'll get those green hints coming back mm-hmm. from show plan. They'll create the index and then they'll go, wow, this is really much better. So they'll put the index on. And, mm. and as you've already mentioned, if we're in a development environment and we're on smaller data sets yep. and even the dev boxes, like I can run stuff on my laptop, you know, with the amount of memory that I have in the CPU, I can run even reasonable data sets from a testing perspective that don't even appear to have any problems, right? But right. when you really get into production and you start talking about millions of rows, hundreds of thousands even of rows, then some of that stuff's not going to scale. Yeah. So they don't recognize that they're having the problems until, you know, it's much later, it's in production, and now they're not even sure where to go, where to look, what is redundant, what is the problem. And, mm. and there's some DMVs that'll help. Right. There's um, a DMDB index usage stats that will tell you if your indexes are getting used and if nice. so how they're getting used which is cool cuz if they're getting overused will it tell you that as well Well overused What is I mean is if it's impacting your updates. performance yeah. yeah so they tell you seeks scans and updates Okay so you can run a query that basically says show me all the indexes that have very few seeks like let's say under 5 yep. very few scans let's say under 5 and updates over 10,000 right mm. and I actually ran that in a customer site once and they had hundreds of indexes that met that it was like wow. 350 something indexes wow. that met that met that so you criteria. took out your pruning shears yeah, yeah. you def- and and um does my code do that i do have code i don't know if i've blogged that i'm sure between glenn and um right uh, there, i'm sure it exists out there there is code where you can read from the dmvs and then actually generate the drop index statement wow. you want to be careful though yeah. because like <laughs> the missing index dmvs aren't since the beginning of time they get flushed. Like if you detach a database, if you take a database offline, if you shut down and restart SQL Server, you lose those. There's even some cases in 2012, if you rebuild, I think, I think it's if you rebuild an index, then you lose some of the stats. So you've got to persist this data and then look at it after you've persisted the data for, let's say, a business cycle. It's only until you really know a full business cycle whether or not that index really is getting used. Because you might have a query that only runs once a quarter, once a month, like month-end processing, where that index is really critical. Having said that, <laughs> I would say, yeah, I know. Having said that, if you do have a query that runs monthly or quarterly, Sometimes it's actually best to programmatically add an index, like on the 25th of the month, and have a job that drops that index on like the second oh, of the month. right. Yeah. You know, it's amazing the things that you can do if you just think a little Dynamic bit about your workloads. indexes based on Absolutely. what you're going to do. Well, so that through the most of the month, OLTP is not negatively impacted. Right. And then when those, those when end of the time to do the month end processing, you index, you spend an evening building indexes exactly. so that you have less time to do all your month end stuff and then you clear it all off again. Yeah. Wow. Totally. There's lots of cool things you can do there. Yeah. I'm, and it just takes understanding your workload and kind of knowing what's going on in the environment, which takes time. And, and again, it, it, you can only do it by looking at what's really going on. You can't trust the users. Okay. Early mistake number four. Um, so I've done consistency, GUIDs, defaults, indexing. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. 
Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. All right, so we're on five. Um, so I think I talked about this before I started on the .NET Rock show when mm -hmm. we were just discussing with the audience. I'd say probably the fifth one is related to stored procedures or right. even just plan caching mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how SQL Server deals with statements. And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings that developers – make about code because again it's it's not obvious like they think oh if i send over an ad hoc statement sql server will will do plan reuse and plan caching and the plan is the execution plan of what it's actually going to do internally yeah, like, should and, i use an index should i yeah. do a table scan should i do a hash join merge join loop whatever yeah so yeah. all of that can be basically saved in the plan cache and mm -hmm. what's interesting is that the rules for saving the statements plan are very there's a lot of rules and the rules are even as, as simple as if the query has more than one table in it, they're not going to save the plan and reuse the plan. And so the number of statements that actually get saved is limited. So here's what happens. Somebody executes a, a statement with a parameter of, let's say, Randall, right? Select from member where last name is Randall. And then somebody says, select star from member where last name is Franklin. Select star from member where last name is um, Campbell. God, all of a sudden mm -hmm. I was looking at you going, what the hell is your last ah, name? name? So... <laughs> so You've got these statements going off to the server, and SQL Server sees them as, let's say, unsafe. So it doesn't parameterize, and it doesn't save their plan in cache. So what happens is each time you execute, a plan goes into cache, and this starts to eat up the amount of cache that is used for plans, right? And you're actually starting to fill this up with what we call single-use plan cache bloat. You're basically bloating your cache with plans that are only getting used once. Mm -hmm. And they basically start putting that into the cache. And what's interesting is the amount of plan cache, it does vary version to version to version. But let's say you've got 64 gig of memory. I believe the plan cache size is 9 gig of it. And you can end up filling up 9 gig of your basically SQL Server memory with plans that are only getting used once when you could be better using that cache for like... Um, right. Data cache. This sounds or, like a con one of the consequences when you use RRMs, where and, and, we've got statements being generated ad hoc yeah, automatically from a SQL Server point of view. It, absolutely. It, but you have to be careful because that's a pure ad hoc. What some applications are doing, some clients are doing, and some ORMs are doing is they're using what's called forced statement caching. So they're not sending over just a simple ad hoc statement. They're using a prepared statement. Mm -hmm. They're using SP execute SQL. Right. And what happens with that is on first execution, they do something called parameter sniffing, which has a bad rap. A lot of people think it's immediately bad. For that first execution, it's not bad. Mm. But for subsequent executions, if the statements and the, the results set wildly vary, the plan might not be good. And as a result, right. that forced statement that's cached ends up putting a plan in cache that's not good for the, the larger number now, of people. Now, is all of this executing. a problem because the plan is something that you d can't change? So... The way that it works in SQL is that when there isn't a plan already in cache, they'll look at, they'll sniff, they'll put a plan in cache based on those parameters. And because compiling a plan and coming up with a plan can be expensive, they wanted to optimize that by putting that plan in cache for reuse. What I'm saying is you don't create the plan. No. SQL does. SQL does, yeah. And because of that, you end up doing a lot of weird things to get it to make the plan you want. 
Yes. And in so wouldn't some it be cases, great if we better. could just make the plan? Well, yeah, but the plan could vary execution to execution. The plan could vary as data changes over time. Well, it's pretty I, hard these days to get SQL Server to make different plans for the same intended result set. Like, for the same intended result set, yes, but when the result set varies for different parameters of right. a stored procedure, mm. then you can control it by using different re recompilation options. Right. Yeah. Including one that will force it not to store a plan. Yeah, for that statement, statement level recompilation, which is really cool. It's called option recompile. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Kim, that was the five points. We originally asked for one. You gave us five. Is there <laughs> anything else? We almost hesitate to ask. I know. I there is one more. Because we got to get out of here, man. <laughs> we got some bourbon to drink, Kim. Yeah. All right. One uh, more. Uh, okay. One more. One more. You guys want, yeah, you want one more? Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. So in terms of locking and blocking, when you guys are writing a, a lot of, you know, different types of statements, there's queries, there's readers, there's writers, you can have a lot of locks. And locks in and of themselves are not evil, but... If you have long-running transactions, they can hold locks longer, which can then end up creating blocking. And there is a feature that I think is undervalued and not used as often as I think people should really evaluate, and it's called, generically, it's called snapshot isolation. I'm even being bad because I complain about the fact that that's not specific enough. There's two flavors of it. One is is really called read-committed snapshot isolation, and then the other one is actually called snapshot isolation. The long story short is, and I wrote a 60-page white paper on this if you're really interested. If Two minutes left in the show. <laughs> and we're going down this route. No, no, we're not. We're not. All right, okay. But here's the point. It's something that if you turn on what's called read committed snapshot isolation, there's no application change required with this. So you turn on this database option in a testing environment. Mm. You do workload and benchmark testing. And you can see what the impact of it is. And you can decide if that's something that you want to consider for production. Mm. And I, I would recommend that you understand more about what it does because it does do something called versioning. Those versions go into TempDB. That takes overhead. Nothing's free. And if you haven't optimized TempDB, you could completely shoot yourself in the foot. There's a whole white paper on working with TempDB and optimizing TempDB. See, there's tangents here. It almost sounds like transactional memory. Um, Software transaction it's, memory. It's more, it, well, versioning. It's it's yeah. state memory. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if somebody is modifying a row and you just want to know what the row was, instead of waiting for that modification to finish, the, the, the way that they do that is they say, well, let's just look at essentially the state that was valid mm. when your transaction started. Um, or when your statement started is more accurate. Okay. Mm -hmm. So and anyway, it, I guess my point is just look into it and right. consider using RCSI or read committed snapshot isolation because you'd be amazed. No application change. Right. And you can sometimes drastically reduce. Yeah, re yeah. Readers don't block writers. Writers don't block readers. Wow. And you can you and can database and the data still remains consistent, which and is you the tricky get, part. Well, to be honest, you get better consistency and accuracy than the default behavior in hmm. SQL. Is there any? type of scenario that lends itself more to benefiting from that? Any environment that does a lot of real-time analysis or wants to do real-time analysis but maybe can't right now because it, it just doesn't work, it's too so in an OLTP environment. Right. Big, okay. ag big aggregates during high transaction volume. Big right. aggregates or large joins, large, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In, you know, you want to do more and more closer to real-time or real-time analysis, you have to consider RCSI. Sure. Kim, you're amazing. 
Drinking from the fire hose. That's what we call it. Thank you to Kim Tripp. And we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on Dotnet Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.